Amen. Amen. Uh, I've heard it said if a fellow can't uh, preach after that kind of singing, he can't preach. But uh, I'm not sure a fellow ought to preach after that kind of singing. We ought to just keep singing. But uh, what, a, what a blessed morning of worship it's already been. Brother Ronald was exactly right. The worship service isn't starting now. The worship service started when we actually when we got here and started fellowshipping together. But when the singing starts, that's the worship service. That's, that's worship. And that's the part that you can participate in uh, even more actively than this part. I mean, certainly, I hope you're participating right now by praying for me and praying that the Lord, through his Holy Spirit, will come down and dwell with us and meet with us here. But, uh, but you, can, you can participate in a very active way in the singing service. And what a blessing it is to be able to do that. Uh, you know, I got to tell you, I, told, I mentioned last night about how the Lord blessed me about 10 years ago to, to come to the Primitive Baptist. And before that, we, my brother and I, some of you know our story, we grew up in churches that were Baptist churches that believed the truth of grace. Uh, but they had a little different uh, approach to worship and that sort of thing. And uh, one of the things that, uh, that we always had growing up was a piano. And, uh, and I'm not saying this to be critical. I grew up with a piano in the church. I'm not criticizing being, you know, attacking anybody and that sort of thing. But, uh, but I tell you this, Brother Ronald, I thought as I was, you know, struggling with, is the Lord want me to join Zion Church? Surely not this little primitive Baptist church. Surely not this little one-member church. All this stuff, you know, was going through my mind. And, and the thing kept getting, by the way, I have to give up the piano, you know. Well, uh, I finally decided that uh, the Lord kept dealing with me. It didn't matter what I had to give up. I had to get there. <laughs> I had to get there to Zion Church. And... Uh, uh, I said, well, Lord, I'll just have to sacrifice. I'll just have to sacrifice the musical instruments. It'll be a sacrifice, but I'll have to sacrifice. Uh, well, let me just tell you, it hasn't been a sacrifice. <laughs> it's been the greatest experience of our lives about six months into our, our time there being members of Zion Church. Ashley, my youngest daughter, who's now 20, um, what is she, 22? 20, huh? 23, 23, wow. Okay, anyway, my youngest daughter's 23. She was about 13 uh, then and um, and she looked up at me after one song service one Sunday morning. She said, "Daddy, I just sing better here than I have anywhere else," and and she's exactly right. And and my point about that is not to be attacking any other uh, denominations or types of worship that sort of thing. That's their business, not ours. Uh, but I will say this: that if you've ever experienced the the joy of what we experienced this morning, you won't be worried about what you had to give up in order to be a primitive Baptist when it comes to singing. What a glorious morning it was. I, I, I'm, I could go on and on about it, but now's the time for preaching. And uh, let me just also ask that you continue to pray for me. I, I want to say this. I had absolutely no intention whatsoever coming up here all week studying to preach out of Nehemiah. Uh, and so about an hour before we got here, that's when Nehemiah started coming on my mind. Well, I had no intention last night of going back to Nehemiah, but I can't get Nehemiah off my mind. So Lord willing, this morning, we're going to go back to the book of Nehemiah. And we're going to look at the second chapter, whereas last night we looked at the first chapter. And you may recall that the theme of Nehemiah is rebuilding broken walls. And we talked about the things in our lives and the things in this country, the things in our churches sometimes that are broken that need rebuilding, they need fixing, they need to be uh, put back into the kind of order that, uh, that, that, that they can be useful, that they can be functioning as they ought to in the kingdom of God. 
Over in the 48th chapter of the book of Psalms, I believe it is, we read about uh, a man, uh, David there, I believe, is writing, and he, he's telling a man to walk about Zion. He said, take a look around. Go in and look around and look at the, look at the towers. Tell the towers thereof. Look at the bulwarks. And he said, look at the palaces. He, he named three things that the kingdom of God ought to, be, uh, ought to be, that ought to be part of the kingdom of God. There ought to be towers. What's a tower do? A tower elevates you to the point where you can see farther. You, your vision is extended by a tower. That's why they put towers in castles, so they could see the enemy coming from farther off. They didn't have to wait until he was right upon them to see there were towers that they could climb up. Then there were palaces. There were palaces there for the, uh, for the king and for his family to rest in and to feed in and to be together in. And that's, that ought to be, there ought to be a palace in the kingdom of God. Every, this church ought to be considered a palace, a place where the children of the king, do you know you're a child of the king? <laughs> You know that we're children of the, of the eternal God, the God of the heavens. We are his children and we are his family. And we ought to be able to come together and to dine and to rest in the kingdom of God. Too many churches are, are too busy and they're substituting busyness. They're substituting work for worship as Martha did that day. When Mary sat at the feet of Jesus, Martha was out serving. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing to be a servant in the kingdom of God. But don't neglect that better part which is to sit at the feet of Jesus and to rest in the kingdom of God. And then there are bulwarks, which are essentially walls, walls that protect, walls that keep you in, walls that keep the enemy out. But you know what happens when the walls are broken down, as they were in Jerusalem? The enemy can come marching right in. He can go in and out. He can, your, your little children, there's no protection. You know, I heard Sonny Pyle say this one time about his preaching and about our ministry as, as preachers. Uh, he said, I'd rather build a high wall at the top of the cliff than a first aid station at the bottom. <laughs> and that's what the church is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a high wall, but when the walls are broken down, our children can just go off the cliff. Nehemiah, as you remember from last night, had a burden for Jerusalem. Nehemiah, as you know, lived in a time after the Babylonian captivity had ended. And the Persians had allowed the people of God, had allowed the Jews to go back home. Nehemiah, I think, is probably about 65 to 70 years after that initial return that Zerubbabel and Joshua, the son of Josedek, were in charge of, where they went back to rebuild the temple. Then about 50 years after them, Ezra came along to rebuild the worship that was fallen down, that was messed up. And then about 15 years later, we have Nehemiah after Ezra. And he got this terrible report that the people of God were in much affliction. And there they were under great reproach and the walls of Jerusalem were broken down and the gates burned with fire. They were just wide open to the attacks of the enemy. You know, we said last night, I don't want to rehash the sermon, but just understand that last night we said, and it's true, Nehemiah could have looked away. He could have said, it's somebody else's problem, not mine. I'm the king's cupbearer. I've got a great role to fill here in the secular world, and, uh, and I need to stay where I'm at. I'm on the way up. I'm climbing the ladder. Uh, and, hey, I'm not even a preacher. <laughs> Best we could tell, Nehemiah wasn't even a preacher. He was a, he was a member of the congregation. He, was a, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't a priest. He wasn't a prophet. He was just the king's cupbearer. 
But you recall what happened with Nehemiah. He, he had a burden for the people of God. It, it hurt him that the kingdom of God was broken down, that the walls were broken down, and that the enemy had free reign among the people of God. I want to say to you this morning as children of God who have been blessed to be in the true kingdom of God, the visible aspect of that kingdom, the church of the living God, it ought to hurt us to see God's people in any part of the country or even those just around us whom the enemy has overpowered and overtaken. It hurts me. I hope it hurts you. Sometimes I'm neglectful. I look away. But oh, may we be like Nehemiah. And so... Now, you recall what he did. He started praying. And he didn't pray some little ritual prayer. He said, God, we have sinned against you. Not they have sinned. I said last night, you know, I'm somebody, I heard the song one time. Brother Terry may know what it's called, a recovering Pharisee. said, I, you, know, I'm, I'm a reco- you know, I'm a recovering Pharisee. I've been real good all my life at confessing other men's sins. <laughs> but I've had a hard time sometimes confessing my own. But... Nehemiah didn't have that problem. Nehemiah confessed that we as a people and me individually, I have sinned against you, God. And he was in fervent prayer. And we we recall the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Now, if you look at Nehemiah 1 and verse 1 and Nehemiah 2 and verse 1, and you do the math, you'll find out that there was about a four-month period that, that passed between the time Nehemiah had this great burden for Jerusalem in the time that, that, set, that we're set here in in chapter 2. About four months had passed. Now, <laughs> we'll come back to this in a minute, but it's been a long time, Brother Ronald, since I prayed a fervent prayer for four months. I prayed some fervent prayers in my life, but after three or four days, it didn't get answered. I'd move on to something else. You know, you ever thought about, you ever guilty of that? I, I'm not asking for a show of hands. I told you last night, you know, if we were Catholic, you'd have to confess to me, but we're not, so I have to confess to you and hope you understand what I'm, what I'm saying. Um, I think you understand what I'm saying. I, I have prayed fervent prayers, but I've never prayed one for four months that I'm aware of. I never have, because I got tired, I got discouraged. I decided, well, Lord hadn't answered it. I guess it's over. <laughs> you know, I guess no is the answer. Nehemiah was we, we know this because we're going to see that on this day some four months later he's still burdened by the same burden so this this morning i want us to look at what happened after nehemiah began to have this burden and began to pray the prayer and began to beseech god to help in this situation the first thing we see is nehemiah's opportunity here in chapter 2, we read, It came to pass in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was brought before, uh, before him, and I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now beforehand, or before, now I had not before time, I'm sorry, now I had not been before time sad in his presence. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. And then I was very sore afraid. Now I want to stop right there and I want you to notice something about the opportunity that Nehemiah is about to have. And, and, and remember, we're going to see this, this opportunity didn't just come out of the blue, but it came suddenly. It came suddenly. 
It was just an ordinary day. In verse 1, it came to pass. It was just another day that came to pass. He was doing his job. He was, he was like any other day going before the king. And, and there was nothing particularly special. I don't believe Nehemiah got up that morning and said, Today's the day, Lord. The Lord didn't tell him anything about this. But suddenly the opportunity came. He, he was the king's cupbearer. And this was just another ordinary day. Now, I want to ask you something. Isn't this what we're supposed to do? Isn't this what we're supposed to to do that we're called upon to do by God? Aren't we supposed to serve God where we are? Now, I'm not saying that there aren't jobs that you could have that when you have an experience of grace and you, and you are converted to see and understand the truth of God's grace, there certainly are jobs that you ought to quit. If your job is a bank robber, you ought to stop, <laughs> okay? If your job is a murderer, you ought to quit it. You ought to quit doing that. There are things you need to stop. But in general, God doesn't call us to, to suddenly quit our jobs and go off on a hillside somewhere and become a monk. <laughs> Matter of fact, I, I got a particular uh, bee in my bonnet about that. There's, uh, I always forget the name of this particular person, but there were several of them in the, in the first and second and third century AD, uh, men who were, who were uh, uh, children of God, apparently, and they got so uh, fired up about the, the sin of the world and the problems that were out there that they, they decided to go off and become hermits. They thought that, you know, this asceticism, it was called. It was called this idea that you're more holy if you separate yourself from the world physically. Well, certainly God calls us to separate ourselves from the world in a spiritual sense. But I can just see God. This, I know it didn't happen this way, Brother Ronald, but I'm, I'm trying to process it in my mind and explain it best I can. This old monk, there was this particular hermit that lived way out in the deserts there uh, near Jerusalem. And people thought he was so holy. They thought he was the most holy person they knew. They would trek out to the wilderness there, out into the desert to see him. They even ascribed miracles that occurred to him. And I'm, I'm sure those miracles were made up. But, uh, but I believe in miracles, but I don't believe that there were any miracles performed by this hermit. And he was out there all of his life, and he died out there alone. And I can just see the Lord, when he crosses the threshold of heaven at his death, standing there with his arms folded, tapping his foot, saying, Man, what were you thinking? I didn't call you to go off over there and be all by yourself. I called you to serve me where you are. I called you to preach the gospel to people. I didn't call you to get over there uh, away from everybody. Beloved, I'm not saying we shouldn't separate ourselves. And there are physically some times we physically should separate ourselves from things that are going on in this world. But primarily what he's talking about is spiritual separation. And he expects us to keep on doing what we're doing, but serve him while we do it. We all get hung up. Some of you young folks, let me just say this to you. When I was your age, when I was in my early 20s, I had this idea, and and you should be seeking what the Lord wants you to do. You should be seeking the will of God for your life. I was seeking the will of God for my life, but at that time, I thought that it was an all or nothing game. That if I ever got off the road... I can never get back on it. I better be careful because the Lord wants me to be this particular person or this type of job and nothing else. And if I ever get off track, he's done with me. Well, I can look back. I'm 54 years old and I can look back on my life 
And I can see particular points, one or two in particular, where I know I got off track, Brother Ron. I know that I wasn't doing, I, I know the Lord was leading me to do something and I didn't do it. I kept on another path that I thought I needed to be on. And you know what happened? I suffered a little bit more for it. I should have been doing something else. I'd have been a whole lot happier at the time to have done that, but God didn't throw me away. God didn't throw me away. You know, here, this is the bottom line. God expects you to serve him wherever you are. Now you ought to seek his will. You ought to seek to follow him because that's the best thing for you is to be in the will of God. But if you miss the boat, if you mess up, God, God's not gonna throw you away and he expects you to serve him anyway. I didn't quit serving him because I got off track. I didn't say, well, I missed the boat, Lord. I'm just gonna live like a heathen. <laughs> no, God doesn't particularly care if you're a lawyer or a doctor or a ditch digger or a, or, or a farmer or anything else you can name out there, but he expects you to serve him whatever you are. He expects you to serve him. That's what Nehemiah was doing. That's what he was up to. And he wasn't a preacher, remember? He wasn't a priest. He wasn't in the, that line. He wasn't a king. He wasn't in the kingly line. Sometimes I think when we sit in the pool, when we sit in the pew, we put too much onto the man in the pulpit. And I certainly, it's my job, it's Brother Ronald's job to lead this church and to be the face of the church in many ways, to go out there and be a good representative for the church. But I want to tell you something else. <laughs> he knows a lot fewer people than you know. You know a lot more people than he does. You probably, if, he, if, if, if he's like me, you probably come into contact collectively. I know you do collectively as a congregation with a whole lot more people than Brother Ronald does, than your pastor does, whoever that, whatever church you're in or whatever your pastor, whoever your pastor may be. And you know what? It's not the preacher's job to be the ambassador. It's all of our job. All of our job. Nehemiah was carrying on and he was doing his job just like always. But notice that this opportunity came suddenly. It came suddenly. It's been my experience that that's what happens when God opens a door of opportunity in my life. It's rare that he gives me a, a, a red carpet rolled out that I can walk down for 100 feet or 100 yards and know that it's coming. Most of the time, the opportunity opens just like that. So you better be prepared. Nehemiah, you better be prepared. Opportunities like this don't come up all the time. And when an opportunity like this arises, you better have done your homework. We mentioned David last night, the little shepherd boy. He didn't show up uh, there in the Valley of Elah that day and, and just decide to start taking sword fighting lessons. He didn't go down there and decide, hey, I think today is the day that I'm going to slay a giant. I'm going to start taking giant slaying lessons. No, he had started those lessons many years earlier as he was shepherding his father's smelly old sheep in a thankless job with no uh, accolades whatsoever on the hillsides of Bethlehem. He was just being faithful. You know, I, 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 we won't turn there, but the sixth, some, sometime read that, uh, it was the 17th chapter of 1 Kings, read that sometime. And I want you to notice that before his father sent him, he, his father said, I want you to go down there to where your older brothers are fighting the Philistines and take them some food and check them out and see how they're going. You know what the first thing he did was? 
You know, I, I know what I'd have done. <laughs> I'd have dropped every shepherd's tool I had and taken off running because I was, you know, 16 years old, I want to see the battle. But David, we're told, he went and found a keeper for the sheep and left the sheep with the keeper. You know why? Because he was faithful in the small things and the everyday things of life. That's where you train to fight a giant. That's where you train to seize these opportunities. He saw the opportunity. He seized it because he was prepared for it. Now, I'll tell you, I don't want to go too deep into this, but a much less impressive and really a sad story that you want to read about sometime in the 19th chapter of Genesis about a man named Lot. Lot was over there. He had pitched his tent towards Sodom, and then he was living in Sodom, and finally he's serving on the city council, so to speak, in Sodom, sitting in the gates of Sodom, and God showed up just like that, and he wasn't prepared. He was terrified. Child of God. And as a child of God, you and I can sometimes have these opportunities arise when we're not ready. Nehemiah, you better be ready. You better be prepared. First Timothy 3, I mean, 1 Peter 3.15 says, Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh thee of the hope that lieth within you. That's what's about to happen here to Nehemiah. The king is about to ask him, hey, tell me what's wrong. When, the, when, when, uh, when Nehemiah opens his mouth, he better be ready to tell him. He better be, he better be prayed up. He better be thinking in the right way. He better be focused. And he was. Notice that. He never lost focus, apparently, in this four months on the grief that he had for the people of God that were suffering. And he couldn't hide it. He couldn't hide it. He said, in before time, I had not been sad in his presence, but now it was coming through. I don't know if he had suppressed it, Brother Ronald. I think maybe he was, he was doing the best he could to hide it, but I, I, maybe he intended for it to show. I don't know, but it, whatever happened, it finally came out. And the king saw it. I want to tell you something, beloved. If you have a burden for the kingdom of God, people will see it. People will see it. We shouldn't be trying to hide it. Out in the world where we live and where we work, we should, be, we should not be trying to pretend like we're of the world on Monday through Saturday and come in and act like we're of the kingdom on Sunday. You know, we don't wear kingdom clothes on Sunday and work clothes on Monday. We shouldn't. I, of course, I'm, you know, I'm not going to go out and work in my yard in a suit. I'm not saying that. I'm not talking about literally. But it ought to be clear to those around us that we have a burden for the kingdom of God. You better be focused. King, the king called this sorrow of heart. <laughs> Notice what he said. He says, verse 2, Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. And then he says, then I was very sore afraid. I don't, know enough, I don't know all the details of why he was afraid, but I've been told that in, those, in that day, and I certainly know from studying history, that the Persian king was an absolute monarch. The Persian king was looked upon as a god, and his word was law. And if he wanted to take your life today, he could do it. All he had to do was say the word or maybe just give the look. And I've, I've read where that the Persian kings didn't like for anyone to be unhappy if they were happy. <laughs> so maybe that's why he was, maybe that's why he was scared. Maybe that's why he was afraid. But you see, Nehemiah couldn't compartmentalize his life. 
He couldn't have work here and school there and church over here. The people in the place of God, the people in the place of worship of the Lord were his life and it came through and now it's shown to the king. So when the opportunity has arisen now, Nehemiah, you better be courageous. You better have courage. He was sore afraid. You know, it would have been easy for Nehemiah to say, oh, nothing, king, I'm sorry. Hey, I'm sorry, let me put on my happy face. Everything's good. I've got a good job here. You know, notice what's about to happen is, is Nehemiah is about to change jobs. Nehemiah had a great job. He was the king's cupbearer. Nobody could touch Nehemiah. Nehemiah was there with the king constantly. He was like his butler. He was constantly attending to his needs. He lived in the lap of luxury, we would say. But everything that's coming about here, this opportunity that has come up, you better be ready. Don't be praying for an opportunity if you don't really want God to give you one. Because <laughs> here he's found one. And praise God, verse 3, he found a holy boldness that he needed. And he, he said, I was very sore afraid, verse 2. Then he said unto the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's, father's sepulchers, lieth waste and the gates thereof are consumed with fire. <laughs> oh, what a holy boldness. He, he, was, he was ready to uh, say what was on his heart. He was ready to say what's on his mind. And by the way, let me say this too. I'm not saying there's never a place for us to go down on the street corner and preach the word of God. That, you know, if the, Lord, if the Lord truly puts a burden on Brother Ronald to go do that, he ought to do it. But primarily, I, I don't know a real statistic, but I'm going to guess 99.99% of the time, we're told that God opens the doors and usually it's in the form of somebody asking us. I, I'll tell you, I've been praying for opportunities back home. I've been, we, we've been blessed there at Zion over the last 10 years to grow. We, you know, we have a good 30 to 45 uh, people every Sunday. We got about 55 members on the books and all this. We're so thankful for what we have. But I've been praying that the Lord would give us growth. I've been praying, Lord, I've been praying for a long time that the Lord would, would open doors and would give, and you know, <laughs> Prayed like Nehemiah. Probably, I wasn't as faithful as Nehemiah, but it's over a long period of time. And suddenly, in about a one-week time, three different people asked me about Primitive Baptists. They want to know about us. You know, one of the times they asked, I wasn't in too good a mood. I was, I'll be honest with you, I had to, I had to actually take a deep breath because I was dealing with something else and I was, I was just, you know, I was going and I had this stress and all this going on. Somebody said, well, I got a, I got a question for you. I said, what question you got? You know, I was getting ready, you know, for that. And, and they said, what, what about primitive bad? What, what are they? And I was like, uh, <clears throat> okay, <laughs> let me center myself again on the way I should. See, I, the opportunity, and I can tell you, I, I don't even want to go into it. There have been opportunities in the past, in, in my, my past, you know, 25, 30 years that I have missed because I just wasn't ready. I wasn't prepared like Nehemiah, okay? But primarily the way it comes is informed. That's why he said, be be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh thee about the hope that lies within you. In other words, the primary way that the gospel is going to be spread is God's going to work on the other person and he's going to bring him to you to answer his questions. He's going to ask and that's how the door is going to be open. But notice here, Nehemiah, this opportunity came suddenly and he stayed. He was prepared, he was focused, and he was courageous but notice also, these opportunities like this, and Nehemiah's in particular, didn't just come suddenly out of the blue. It came prayerfully, prayerfully. Remember what we said? 
He had been praying for four months. And look at verse 4. The king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Nehemiah prayed first and foremost in every situation, it appears to me. He had a habit of prayer. This quick little prayer was offered on the foundation of hours of effectual, fervent prayer. You better, as I said earlier, you better hope you're prayed up. If you're serious about God, pray, praying to God about giving us opportunities, you better be prayed up. You better be praying on a habitual level. And that's what was happening here. Nehemiah had an established habit of prayer. We need to have that kind of established habit of prayer. You know, at this point, he offered up a quick little prayer, but he didn't fall to his knees he didn't say, hang on just a minute, King. Let me go into my prayer closet. Let me turn off the light. Let me get on my knees and say, Lord, what in the world am I going to do? You know, He knew what he ought to be asking for because he'd already been praying to God. He was already praying in an effectual, fervent way. You know, I, I ask you this question. Would Nehemiah even have thought to pray here if he didn't already have an established habit of prayer? I'm not even going to tell you about it, but I can remember one particular incident when I was about 19 or 20 years old where a, a crisis came and I was out of the habit of prayer. And I didn't call on the Lord in prayer. I called on him in a very wicked way. And I've never forgotten that, Brother Ronald, in, in a way that would have been very shameful. Uh, it's certainly shameful in the sight of God. It would have been shameful for anyone else to even know about it. Because I didn't have an established habit of prayer. But Nehemiah had a habit of prayer. He, he, and he resorted in this crisis immediately to this little narrow, quick arrow of prayer. <laughs> you know, he just quickly prayed to the God of heaven. I don't know what he said, but I'm sure he said, you know, it may have been just like Peter's prayer, walking on the water, Lord save. <laughs> Lord save me. You know, you don't have time to, Peter, when he was walking on the water, he didn't have time to, to get out his prayer shawl and go to his closet. He just had to pray a quick prayer. And oh, how many times I prayed that prayer, Lord, save me. Here, I'm sure Nehemiah just said, Lord, help me. I prayed that prayer, Lord, help me. <laughs> you know, this is something, though, that is so encouraging to me. If you go over to Isaiah, the 65th chapter and the 24th verse, God tells us something about our prayers that is so encouraging. He says, it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. <laughs> While they're yet speaking, I will hear. In other words, don't think God didn't know what was going to happen. Don't think God didn't know. In fact, we're going to see that this, this opportunity didn't just come out of the blue. God was working in this matter. God already knew what he needed. And praise God. He's already answering the prayer before he even prays it. <laughs> I love that. In verse 5, I said unto the king, If it please the king, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. I want you to notice something here. Not only did this prayer, this, this opportunity come to him and he immediately resorted to prayer. He also asked for the right thing. He asked for the right thing. You know, James tells us there's times when we ask and receive not because we ask amiss that we may consume it upon our own lusts. But not here, not Nehemiah. He was focused. He had the right request, and that request was focused upon God and his kingdom. 
I want to say to you, every prayer you pray ought to end with the words, Thy will be done. It ought to include somewhere in there, Thy kingdom come. That's why Jesus gave us the model prayer, right? To tell us some things that we ought to be asking for. We ought to be praying for the kingdom of God to manifest itself in this world in a very real way, which is what it's doing here today. We trust here in this kingdom of God, this visible aspect of it. And we ought to ultimately say, God, your will be done. I mean, if Jesus prayed that, shouldn't we? (laughs) This opportunity came suddenly and it came prayerfully, but it also came providentially. It came providentially. I want you to notice in verse 6. King said unto me, the queen sitting by him, For how long shall thy journey be? When wilt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Moreover, I said unto the king, If it please the king, let letters be given to the governors beyond the river, that they may convey me over till I come into Judah, and a letter unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace, which appertain to the house, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall enter to. And now notice this. And the king granted me, according to the fact that I was such a good servant, king granted me according to how smart I was. The king granted me according to how much preparation I had done. (laughs) That's not what my Bible says. My Bible says the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. If you ever have an opportunity to advance the kingdom of God in some way, the minute you try to take credit for it, I promise you the advance will stop. If you ever have the opportunity to to participate in the revival of the kingdom in some place where it has been dead or it has been apparently dead, then praise God for it. It's according to the good hand of your God upon you. I mentioned Zion Church. I'm so thankful for what's happened there. And I am still to this day, Brother Ronald, bewildered that I got to be a part of it. (laughs) There's a lot of people praying. There's a lot of people offering up prayers and working behind the scene. And we've all, all of us there at Zion have worked in some way, but not one of us can take a credit, not one iota of credit for it. Nehemiah didn't say, you know, uh, this all happened because it was 50% me and 50% God. (laughs) He didn't even say it was 99% God and 1% me. Praise God, it's all of him. It's according to the good hand of God. He didn't take any credit. Opportunities like this don't just happen. And in fact, I'm, as I go back to what we said to start with, I don't believe Nehemiah got up that morning thinking, this is the day that I'm going to get to go back to Jerusalem. It came to him out of the blue from his standpoint, but oh, it was, it was providential from God's grace. Nehemiah's opportunity came and he, 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 he rose to the task. He, he answered the call. He he prayed to God and he gave God the credit. And now I want you to look for the time we have left at Nehemiah's strategy. Notice what happened here. Beginning here in verse 9. Then I came to the governors beyond the river. See, he's been let go. The king said, you can go. And the king gave him what he asked for. He said, and I gave them the king's letters. He said, the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. Now, verse 10, we're going to come back to, but notice what happened here. And this will happen every time the kingdom of God begins to advance. There will be opposition. 
When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. Uh, as I said, Lord willing, we'll come back to that. But I just want you to know, don't think that it's going to be a cakewalk when the God opens a door of opportunity. It's not going to be a cakewalk. There's going to be a lot of opposition to it because I, the devil is still the devil and he still hates the people of God. And he certainly hates the kingdom of God. And he's going to try to tear it down. He says in verse 11, though, so I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Notice it's the first aspect of Nehemiah's approach of his strategy was he went to the right place. He went to the right place. He acted upon his prayers, but he didn't just go off uh, somewhere out there half cocked, so to speak. He went to the right place. Beloved, you need to be where God says you need to be if you're going to do his work in the right way. This is a literal Jerusalem, certainly, but, but Psalm 48 and verse 2 talks about how beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is the city of God. Beloved, I believe that's a reference to the church today. That's a reference literally to Jerusalem then, but we are the new Jerusalem. We are the new place where God has chosen to put his favor. And that day he chose to put his favor in public worship there in Jerusalem. Today he chooses to do that in the kingdom of God, the church. And you need to be in the right place. You say, well, I can worship God in the tree stand. Well, you can, but you can't do it very well. <laughs> I want to know how many times you've been saying a prayer as you're pulling the trigger. I can worship the Lord at the ball game. Are you out there shouting, go God, or are you shouting, roll tide? <laughs> well, none of y'all are probably shouting, roll tide. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I'm in the wrong place for that sermon right there. So we, uh, I'm, in, I'm not in the right place. I need to get to the right place, uh, maybe tomorrow evening. But what, what, did, what did Paul, and I believe it's Paul writing in the book of Hebrews, what did he say in chapter 10 and verse 25? Forsaking not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. And the reason he says that is he's given us some things we need to do to each other, exhort, reprove, uh, encourage all these things. You can't do that. It's, it's actually discouraging to me as a pastor when my, uh, when my people aren't at church. You know, I have people come up to me, Brother Ron, they say, well, I just want you to know we're going to be on vacation next week and we're not going to be at church. And I, I guess they want me to say, oh, that's great. I'm so glad you're not going to be at church. <laughs> I, that's fine. I understand. There's va I, I'm not fussing about somebody missing church once or twice a year, maybe for something. But I'm telling you, beloved, you need to be in church. That's where God, you need to be in the right place. And by the way, Nehemiah could have stopped at any number of cities on his way to Jerusalem who had these ziggurats, these places of pagan worship. There was all kinds of worship places, places of public worship between uh, Babylon and Jerusalem. He could have stopped anywhere. He could have said, well, I'm going to go back to worship and just stopped at any old place. But that's not what he did. He went to the right place. He didn't go to just any old place of worship. He went to the place of true worship. He went to the place where God had said for his people to go and where, where he had said for them to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the worship and now to rebuild the walls. He went to the right place and he made the right preparation. As I said earlier, he didn't go off half cocked. Look at verse 12. <laughs> 
I rose in the night, and I and some few men with me, and neither told I any man what God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, neither was there any beast with me, save the beast I rode on. He said, and I went out by night by the gate of the valley, and he goes on to talk about all the things that he saw. He said, I viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates which were consumed with fire. He went to the gate of the fountain. He went to different places, and he surveyed the whole situation before he got to work. He didn't go off half-cocked. As we say, you know, and by the way, that's one reason we don't ordain a novice. He's to, we're told in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that, that a man who's to be ordained to the full work of the gospel ministry shouldn't be a novice. That means a new convert. Because the problem with that is he'll be lifted up with pride. You know, it, it's a temptation when you see the truth of God's grace, especially someone who's just converted from some belief that's different from, from the understanding that God saved his people from their sins. It's tempted to be lifted up with pride. I know more than they do. <laughs> You know, I felt that way one time. I was, I was satisfied just to be right at one time. It was, it was enough for me. I tell this, I got to tell this story. I hope this is going out on the ways because I'm going to point it out to Tim uh, when I get home. He knows I tell this story on him, but it just, it's just too good a story not to tell, Brother Ronald. It makes such a good point. Well, amen, I'm going to tell it. All right, you told me to, I'm going to tell it. Uh, Tim was about ninth or 10th grade and he got elected chaplain at Pickens Academy where we go to, uh, where we went to school. And, uh, and he thought it was a good idea. You know, as I told you, we were raised in the doctrines of grace. It wasn't a primitive Baptist church, but it, we believe the truth of grace. And so as chaplain of the Student Government Association, he decided to start a, uh, uh, a little Bible study once a week. And he thought it was a good idea that the first Bible study, he was gonna tell them what we believe. Well, he told them what we believed and they kicked him out of his own Bible study. <laughs> uh, and one of the girls there that was his friend, but was kind of haughty about it, she, said, she looked at him and said, I'm going to be praying for you, Tim McCool. it just flew all over him. And he came home that day. Like I say, he's ninth, 10th grade. He came home that day, and he told Mama, he said, I tell you what, I can't wait to get to heaven so I can tell her I told you so. <laughs> <laughs> now, <laughs> he certainly doesn't have that attitude today. And I got to confess, even back then, I had that attitude. So I like to tell it on him uh, because it's a true story, but I can't, I can't really put him down too much. But see, he was, he was just satisfied to be right. And that's the way I was for many years. It was just enough for me to be right. <laughs> but, uh, but you see, that's not what we're supposed to be doing. And, and if you're a novice, sometimes it, it's a temptation to say, I've learned new truth, truth that I didn't know before. And now uh, I'm going to be lifted up with pride about it. We don't, we don't ordain a novice because they may go off half-cocked, as we say. I, I don't necessarily recommend this movie, but I watched a movie many years ago, Steve Martin and Chevy Chase and, uh, and, Mar uh, and Martin Short, uh, called The Three Amigos. And there's a place in that Three Amigos where these guys are down uh, in uh, Mexico, and they're getting, uh, they, they've, they've finally worked up the courage to go against the bad guy, and they get all excited about it, and they jump on their horses, and, and the scene closes as they're riding off, shooting guns in the air, and they're wide open riding out into the desert. And then the next scene comes up, they're walking their horses back, and one of them looks at the other one and says, how far did we go before we realized we didn't know where we were going? <laughs> Well, I've thought about that very often. Sometimes as children of God, we can go off that way, not knowing where we're going. But see, Nehemiah had made the right preparation. He surveyed the damage. He counted the cost. He saw where the work was needed. You know, that's, that's a temptation sometimes. And I just want to encourage all of you and us, me, myself as well. When there are problems in the church and the walls start looking broken down, don't. Don't go finding new things. 
Don't go looking for new things. So many times, even among our own people, when there's struggles in a church, they start implementing new things. And the answer to our, all of our problems is it's the same old answer. It's the same old pattern. Go back. Go back to what the Word of God says. Go back to what the first century Christians were doing. No new things. We don't need new youth groups. We don't need, we don't need basketball courts. We don't need things like that, especially in our churches. Make the right preparation. And then notice this. He preached the right message. Look at verse 17. Then said I unto them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. And then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me. And it's also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hands for this good work. He preached the right message and it was the same old message. It was the same thing he had told the king. It was the same thing he had struggled with and been burdened about in the first uh, chapter there. He preached the right message. He didn't say, let's go do something new. Let's go create some new message or new, new way of worship. You know what they did? You'll continue reading here. You'll see they used the same old materials. You don't read anywhere in Nehemiah where they brought in a bunch of architects and started some excavation project and started uh, reevaluating re the temple and the size of it. And, and they, they, just, they just came in and used that same old pattern. The same walls were, the walls were put up in the same old places. Right where they were, they were just strengthened. And it must have struck a chord with those that heard him. Just like the gospel still strikes a chord with God's people today. Because they said, let us rise up and build. I'm telling you, that's at Zion Church. I can't tell you how many people have come in and said, wow, this is so simple. The worship is so simple. The message is so simple. And, and, and our desire, I know it's your desire as well. My desire, I know the Apostle Paul wouldn't recognize the chandeliers. He wouldn't recognize the windows or the building or the bathrooms. But I believe the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter came in here today and sat down and sat through this service. When it was over, he'd say, you know, that's just about exactly like we did it. That's how we did it. That's why we're called primitive Baptists. Primitive, not because, you know, some people, I had a guy the other day ask me, he said, are y'all like Neanderthal? I said, no, we don't wear loincloths and drag our women around by the hair. Uh, that wouldn't work in my house anyway. Uh, very well at all it'd be the other way around <laughs> but uh but I said what well, it means original it means we go back to the first principles he preached that message now finally this morning we just have a few minutes left you say preacher I, I thought what you're supposed to do every time you get in the pulpit is preach the gospel the good news well I want to say to you I just have but see, there's something here in Nehemiah's message that we don't need to miss. Nehemiah's message was a prophetic message. It is indeed the gospel message. You remember what Jacob told his sons in the 49th chapter when he was talking about Judah? He said, the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. That's an explicit prophecy that there will always be a kingly line in Israel until the time of Shiloh. What is Shiloh? Shiloh is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It comes from the word shalom, which means peace. And Shiloh is an indication of the ultimate peace. The ultimate peacemaker, the Lord Jesus Christ, will come. And one day, he will make peace between, between the consuming fire of the wrath of God and the consuming fire of the love of God. The mercy and righteousness will meet together. Righteousness and truth will kiss each other. <laughs> Praise God. Shiloh's coming. And he's got, there's a particular place he's coming. Daniel tells us in the ninth chapter, we don't have to read it, but he gives, a even, he gives us an explicit and specific timeline for when he's coming. And Micah tells us this, But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from old, from everlasting. Nehemiah is not just preaching some message of nostalgia. Oh, the good old days when Jerusalem was doing better. Oh, the good old days when we could worship there. Oh, the good old days when Solomon's temple was there. If he were preaching that message, he'd be very disappointed because those that rebuilt the temple were very disappointed that had seen the old men who had seen the old temple of, of Solomon. It was so much more glorious, so much more beautiful, so much more in grandeur. But they wept when they saw it because this new temple was going to be so much smaller. It was going to be a dinky little place, they thought, that wouldn't compare in glory Oh, but Haggai said, one day the glory of this temple shall be greater than the glory of the other temple. You know why that is? Because the Lord Jesus Christ will walk in this temple. <laughs> that Jesus himself will be gracing the walls of that temple and he will be there preaching the, the message that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. <laughs> oh, what a glorious thought that is. Nehemiah is not preaching a message of history or nostalgia. He's preaching a message of prophecy. He's preaching a message of good news. We've got to go back. We've got to build the walls because guess what? One day Shiloh is coming and he's coming here. <laughs> he's not coming to Babylon. He's not coming to Nineveh. He's not coming to Rome or any other place. He's coming to Bethlehem Ephratah, a small little place, a little town on the outskirts of Jerusalem. See, we've been, we've been reading about the gospel. We've been reading about how God is so loving and merciful to his children that he provided not only the way, but he provided the place where his son one day would come. Opposition arises. Nehemiah has trouble there. It's always going to arise when we try to, especially when we try to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. I don't know, you know, praise God for this church. Praise God for your history. Praise God for how that, uh, the Lord has blessed you. But I know you, like any other church, have had problems. There have been times, I'm sure, when the walls have cracked, when the walls maybe have been broken down. If it hadn't happened lately, it may be coming. But just remember this. The way to rebuild the walls is to humble yourself before the, God, the Lord God of heaven and to go to him in effectual, fervent prayer. And don't quit coming. Don't be like Elimelech and take Naomi over to Moab and stay there for 10 years in the famine. Stay in the house of bread. That's what Bethlehem means. Stay in the house of bread. Be a Boaz, not an Elimelech. Be a Nehemiah and not a naysayer. Be willing to go out and build the walls 
with the tools that God has given us in his word. Not something new, the same old story, the same old pattern. May the Lord bless you this morning.